that I, I saw this thing on the weekend that kind of terrified me. Okay. So, you know when you take a photo with an iPhone? Yeah. It makes a sound? Yeah. Why does it make that sound? Well, because it's the camera clicking, right? Yeah. It's the shutter in the camera. But the iPhone doesn't need to make that sound. Uh. It makes it sound so we know it's a camera. Imagine being a kid growing up now. You know it makes that sound and it takes a photo. You have no idea why it makes that sound. Yeah, right. And you've also got no idea the pain we used to go through. And we had to roll up those little films and yeah. plop them in those little black canisters, walk down the street to the developers to develop the, develop the photos. Exactly. Um, maybe pop into HMV Records on the way back, yeah. get, get some cassettes from my Walkman. Yeah. You know, I used to listen to a bit of Oasis. I was more of a Spice Girls fan. There but... you go. <laughs> yeah. When I was out of the house, no one could contact me because I didn't have a mobile phone. In fact, there was probably only one phone in my house at that point. Yeah. Anyway, listen, enough 90s nostalgia. <laughs> Let's get on with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we welcome special guest Stuart McKinnon, who is a partner in the investment team at LCP. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Stuart, would you like to go ahead and tell the listeners a bit more about what you do and your area of expertise at LCP? Yes, yeah, certainly. I'm a partner in investment practice which means you know, broad exposure to helping clients satisfy their needs in the context of defined benefit pension scheme investing, yep. which sounds quite a lot. It's basically trying to understand the client's objectives and try to help them meet them in their required time frame. It's really what it's all about. And that's, that can apply to trustees or any other investor. You should have objectives in the time frame. Great. Okay. Before we get into the discussion today, why don't you tell us one thing about yourself that we won't find on your CV? Okay, probably something which my colleagues are probably sick of me talking about at work is, <laughs> is my kids, and we can probably all feel that. I've got, I've got 11-year-old twins, and it's been a great journey the last 11 years de- dealing with them and getting that work-life balance right, which is not always easy. Fantastic. So I guess that's the third of your time in the investment industry. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Good maths. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that's a good point, because I suppose the, the basis of the conversation today was a piece you wrote recently, we'll link to it in the show notes, where you were, I think, reflecting on your 30 years now in the investment business. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 30, 30 years, yes. Did you nearly say 30 long years? No, I I was (laughs) tempted not to, yes, I tried not to. Just paint the scene for us. You're there, what is it, late 80s, skipping down the street to your first job, listening on your Walkman to something. Something. Can't quite remember what I was listening to then myself. But yes, it was September 89. I had a job with an insurance company, which people may remember, called Eagle Star, which is a great business. Got consolidated into other businesses, as as many things have from that era. Mm. But my first job was working on With Profits, policies and the bonus declaration so it was right. an investment job right so mm-hmm. actuarial and investment together and did that for two years before joining their investment team in their london office and interest rates at that point they were guilt yields were 10 percent 10 percent 10 percent double digits now i remember when i first moved to the investment team actually helping the the fixed interest desk when they had to do trades in the market and buying gilts with coupons of eight and three quarters and eight percent and yields of about the similar sort of numbers. I don't know about you, Dan, but right. I've not seen yields at anywhere near that level in my experience. No, no. I'm just Different world. Different mm-hmm. world. Those are days before in, in an independent Bank of England didn't exist. 
you know, the Chancellor would say. I suppose, did, I mean, did you have a computer on your desk? To ask this we question? had a mainframe computer, a right. terminal connected to a mainframe. And probably in my third month, a PC arrived. Right. And you were stuck in the corner and you had to book time on the PC. Wow. So it wasn't quite a personal computer it, then at that stage? No, it was a mainframe. It was a terminal, a, what's called a dumb terminal, right. used by some many dumb users <laughs> linked to some big kits somewhere else in the office. Well, mm. Another dumb question, but were people still smoking in the offices at that point in time? We were owned by a tobacco company. Right. We just always owned by British American Tobacco at the time. And perhaps one or two people did, actually. I think maybe the managers in their offices did. I don't think that any of us juniors would have done. And I certainly have never done so. But yeah, it could have been. Could well have been. Different world indeed. But I remember being in trustee meetings then, and trustees were smoking around the table. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, That's that's quite hard to imagine. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, I suppose it wasn't the point wasn't to indulge in too much of a nostalgia <laughs> session because okay. you drew out some lessons from things you've learned from that period of time. And there must be a lot when you think about that. But when you talk us through a couple of the, the lessons that you highlighted in the piece. I think one thing is, and something which I've sort of struggled with as, as you get, one who's got older, is, is the desire for a new, what's the next new thing? What's the next new idea in investing? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And investing in some form or the other has probably been around since Noah was a boy. In yeah. some form or another, and was that in the early eighties? That was probably just, just <laughs> I think he was probably just, just retiring. I think as I, as I started, and there's nothing really new out there. It's right. just different ways of packaging or different ways of making something available to someone who may not have had access to it before. And that's what, what the innovation's been over the time. It's not new, new ways of making money. It's just making things available to people and to institutions and to say trustee bodies in a more efficient way, or actually make them available when they weren't able to access them in the past so a recent example has been direct investment into infrastructure yeah right yeah as i said i think i said in the article that was only available to like the mega big schemes in the past mm. and now relatively small schemes can get access to that and the industry solved problems but i don't think the industry's presented anything really new fundamentally and that probably takes me on to the second point is is a point which i'll again i'll bang on about a bit internally is there's only two ways to make money and that's you either own something or you lend to it okay and if you break apart any investment that you get, fundamentally, that's what's underneath everything. You either own something or you lend to it, even on derivative structures or anything which we've seen in the last few years. That's all you're doing. But then, hang on, so you're saying any investment out there, so all the equities around the world, emerging markets, investment grades, bonds, high-yield bonds, loans, yeah. private credit, infrastructure, all, like that, funds. All, all that stuff you reckon you can put in one of those two? If you lift the lid of any lift of them, lid. that's what's underneath it's either a combination of those two things or just one of them. My mind immediately tries to find an example yeah. where that isn't the case. Yeah. Insurance linked securities? Exactly. Yeah. I would say that's not an investment. You're providing an insurance policy or you're taking a share of an insurance policy. So you could say you're owning a contract, but that would be a bit of a tenuous link to what I said before. Right. It's something which is now available for people to use as a diversifier, but is it really an investment? I guess it depends what you define as an investment, doesn't it? Because if an investment is a use of money, then you are using money to buy the insurance, I guess. Yes, you do have to commit something, and there is something at risk. But there's always a grey area. But I think fundamentally, Mm. if you look under most things, you either own something, you're trying to generate growth, or you are lending to something to to earn an interest rate. In insurance and securities, you're taking insurance risk, and you're earning a premium. So, yes, I really like that kind of simple kind of framework you either owning something or lending something and I guess how does that help you in practice I mean I, I suppose that helps you drill down when you see a new idea or a new strategy yeah. back to your first point you can kind of get under the hood a little bit by saying 
look, what am I really doing here? Am I lending my own? The great thing, and I say this to all the young kids in the office, if, if, you can say, if I can say that, is the great thing about this job is when you see a trustee really understand something and you see that penny drop moment. You see that penny drop moment and they, they just get it. And our job is to break things down into yeah. bits that they mm. can understand. Yeah, I, I don't want any trustee yeah. investing anything I recommend unless they understand it. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I've stopped trustees doing it because I haven't quite been convinced they really understand what could go right and what could go wrong. Yeah. But once you start breaking it down into, well, I'm lending or I'm buying, I'm yeah. going to get a dividend, I'm going to get an interest rate. Yeah, people fundamentally understand people the idea it. of lending yeah. and owning, yeah. Yeah. owning something. People so have owned something, people, easier, people yeah. have mostly have had a mortgage. Mm. So they understand what paying an interest rate is. And you just sort of turn that argument round and they can see things from a different mm. sides of that, of the capital market, Yeah, really. And the markets, the capitalist system, is all about taking capital from where it is not currently needed to where it is currently needed and paying something greater back in return. Mm. And everything yeah. just comes down to that sort of flow of are you owning something or are you lending to something? And I guess in the context of that and, and the first point you made about there isn't really anything brand new, this is repackaging the same sort of ideas. And you mentioned just then it's important for investors to understand what can go right and wrong. So if there's nothing brand new and we learn from our previous mistakes, does that mean that increasingly the market is just getting better and better and there's going to be less things go wrong? That sort of comes back to one of the other things I've mentioned in the article about the so answering the question, what is the market? And quite often it's used as an abstract phrase, the market thinks, or the market responded, or whatever. And yeah. the market is just a collection of individuals yeah. who have a way of interacting. And so the market is the collective wisdom or the collective lack of wisdom of a large group of individuals. And people forget, people move on, people retire, going back to your previous reference to Noah. And some of that wisdom is lost. And some of the fear and greed instincts come ebb and flow as well as part of that because we are all yeah. human beings. Mm. So the loss of collective wisdom over time or the constant replacing of it leads to things which are not necessarily efficient at different points in time. Yeah. Okay. So the market isn't necessarily becoming more and more efficient. It does learn, but it still does make the same mistakes maybe a few generations apart. Mm. I remember my children were born, my aforementioned twins that I talk about a lot, were being born around about the weekend that AIG, a massive American insurance company, mm. was on the verge of going bust. Right. right. It survived. That really focuses the mind. I, I had loads of bonds, AIG bonds, in a portfolio I was helping to manage at the time, right. Right. whilst trying to hold two twins for the first time. <laughs> right. Which was more stressful. And, and literally I was juggling lots of things, not just juggling two babies. Mm. And that's a lived experience. I just had a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of. The world was going through potential... What, what happened to those bonds? I mean, they obviously they would have fallen in value a lot. But did, did they you... fell in value and they then they matured full, full value. They were quite okay. high in the, in the capital structure of the, right. of the subsidiary of AIG that issued them. Right. Like all the other bonds I held, it was always awareness of where they were in the yeah. capital structure. How early would they be repaid? So mm. bonds issued by Lloyds, Halifax... Bradford and Bingley is a name from the past. They matured at par. The right. equity, another story from something which I've written in the article, the equity of a lot of those organisations got heavily compromised, shall we yes. say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. wiped out, but their bonds got repaid. Mm. And so when you're investing, you've got to know not just what you're going to get paid, but what might happen if they go wrong. Yeah. Will you get paid earlier than someone else? Do you have priority? Yeah. That sort of stuff, having lived it and breathed it and watched it happen, that's valuable. I think mm. it's valuable to at least be aware of that. Can we just maybe stay on that point for, for a moment? And so what I think you've just said is equity is more risky than bonds, but 
I thought I knew that already. So is there some sort of additional nuance here that I'm missing? If you look at one company, the equity is more risky than the bonds. Mm -hmm. But the bond of company A may be more risky than the equity of company B. It's the nature of the two entities which matter and the capital structure. So a general term of equities being more risky than bonds, absolutely. In the the whole capital structure of the economy, Mm -hmm. absolutely. But then when you break it apart and look at individuals, it's about who the actual issuers are. You look at individual investments. And I guess so, it comes back to the you're either buying something or lending something. Yeah. It's who are you buying from and who are you lending to. Yeah, and on what terms. Yeah. yeah. And how much are they lending or borrowing off other people yes. at the same time? Yeah. And it raises that good point about how to actually think about risk when you're talking about bonds, right? I mean, I guess in a lot of the work we do, it's helpful to quantify risk and think about it as a number and look at the standard deviation of returns or something like that or the value mm. of risk and those sort of things. And when you do that, you'll come up with a number for bonds. I guess what you're saying is it doesn't always really capture it, does it? Because the bond might go up and down in price. Clearly, that is real money that's being gained or lost at that point in time. But the bigger question is whether it matures at face value or not, right? Absolutely. And that's where measurement of risk, in inverted commas, can hide lots of important, simple facts. It can also educate. And something an old boss of mine used to say was, risk is in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) It depends what risk it matters to you at that point in time. And is it mark-to-market volatility or bounciness? Or is it, will I get my money back? Mm. Yeah. And those are very different things Yeah. for a bond. It can bounce around a huge amount during the course of its life. Like those bonds happening in AIG, in, 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 in AIG Bradford and Bingley. If they pay back at par, were you really bothered about the journey? Mm. If you were, then yes, that's important. If you weren't, if you were just buy and hold, buy and maintain, as we say now is the new jargon, well, it's easy to say, though, isn't it? I mean, oh, I imagine you were a little bit bothered when those AIG bonds were losing a bit of money. Yeah. Yeah, because I almost dropped my baby, so I was worried. <laughs> but absolutely, and that's where the emotion comes in and where, going back to what I said before, the market is a lot of individuals, of human beings mm. who have this fear and greed. I was fearful of losing my job. Yeah. I was fearful of, ex- of, of losing money on, on other bonds. The market can stay irrational for longer than you can afford to wait. And that comes out of time frames and looking through... If you can't afford to look through the bounciness, then you've got to be bothered about it. Yeah. And I guess for someone who hasn't lived through extreme bounciness, as we discussed earlier, there might be investors that struggle to live through that because they've not experienced it. But are you therefore saying you've got 30 years experience and you've lived through some of these big market sort of corrections, as you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier? So do you have to be experienced? You have to have lived through a crisis to be a good investor, do you think? I think the fund manager, I think, has to have wisdom around them if they haven't seen it themselves. Okay. So they have to have been sat at the knee of someone who's been through it. Right. I was lucky I sat at the knee of people who'd been investing since the late 1970s. So I picked up what they'd been through mm-hmm. by discussing things with them. And that's when interest rates were really high. <laughs> so it's this thing, it's just if people need to be in the right sort of organisation where there's the right sharing of knowledge. And you can't expect people to have a time machine and go back, but you can expect them to study and learn history. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't study history, you can't understand the present and you find it very hard to predict the future. And I guess it's all very well reading books, but actually, like you said, speaking to people who've lived through it probably gives you a bit more of the emotional connection with with that sort of situation. absolutely. And it's still great. So Mm -hmm. you can pick up a lot from the the wealth of information on the internet. Fund managers love talking about their job. So, you know, actually building relationships with a fund manager who talks about their experiences, not just trying to explain what they've done in the last quarter is important. I'm just going to play the other side of the devil's advocate on that argument for a second, because I can see this case for being sort of a little bit cautious and prudent through 
by dint of experience, which is sort of what you're saying. You can also go too far that way, can you not? And there are plenty of opportunities over the last decade for people to say, oh, I don't like the look of this. This all looks too good. I've seen crises in the past and kind of step away from taking enough risk and then sort of miss out on returns. So I guess it's quite, it's a real balance there. I would have thought between taking that experience for what it's worth, but not being over pessimistic about everything because of yeah. because of things you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, you're partly describing the human condition yeah. of lived experiences. You can't forget what you've learned, but sometimes it, it would be useful not to have learned it if there's yeah. some opportunity. So for example, I've never bought shares in Apple. I've never bought shares in Google because it's newfangled. But it was newfangled stuff. Tesla, someone who maybe was less cautious than me would have taken those, those positions. And obviously many people have. Would it, and would have done it. pretty well so far. Would have done far better than I've done <laughs> in investing, certainly. So yeah, there's a balance. There's a balance. A new challenge. Now we're with the different, lots of studies about different differences between different generations. Yeah. Mm. There's a discussion right, about yeah. millennials and generation X, Y, Zs and the like. To have a mixture and that diversity, to have that challenge of old duffers like me, and is incredibly healthy. And yeah. yes, you do need that balance. Because we all just think our experience is all there is. I mean, that's, I guess that's just difficult to get away from that, isn't it, unfortunately? Mm. And I guess to assume that the world still operates in the same way that it did when we had the tech bubble mm. burst and we had the global financial crisis. Mm. Someone who's not lived through those won't have any preconceptions about how the market then recorrects in the wake of something like that. Yes. Whereas you may have a feeling it will behave in the same way it did last time which yes. in many cases I think probably is true, but actually if the world is changing, then there's other aspects to bring in. And that's a combination of people's behaviour, but also the regulation and structures around markets, which is, again, something which has changed a lot. Just in preparation for this, I was reading up about the, the Black Monday, the crash mm. of markets in September 1987. And people may have read or remember the big storm, that came across the hurricane that yeah. oh, wasn't yes. supposed to be and that it yeah. appeared and we woke up and the market, the stock market couldn't open on a Friday. On that Friday, American markets fell 20-odd percent. We opened up on Monday and we fell even more. And a lot mm. of people think, oh, it's because of the storm. People remember the storm and it led to the crash. It wasn't. The world was already falling out of bed on the Friday. We, we just, just didn't realise. We just didn't get up until the Monday. Right. But after that, going back to your point, the regulators put in place what are now referred to as circuit breakers, into the way the markets operate, that if the market falls more than a certain amount, things shut down and allow okay. a time of reflection rather okay. than any panic to continue. Mm. So those circuit breakers are still in there. So the market was learning then that the regulators were learning those huge flows of money and they had to just stop that wiping out value. So it was a good sort of reaction. So, though, so the reason for that crash won't reoccur. Other crashes have happened for other reasons. And you yeah. learn and you try to plug the plug the hole afterwards. Yeah. I remember reading an article in The Economist, and this probably was about five years ago, and it was going back to like the 1800s and talking about all the financial crises mm. that had happened and the fix that was sort of implemented at yeah. each stage. And then clearly the next reason for the next crisis is just different. It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you can't, that's why you don't see it coming. Mm. Or it's very hard to see it coming. Or mm. few people see it coming. And I refer to the movie The, the Big Short if anyone wants to see a movie about the financial crisis, The Big Short is a really, really... It's a great movie. It's, it's a great really, movie really to watch. Movie. You've got to watch it once or twice to really understand it. Or even if you don't understand the jargon, just those people there who saw something which was blindingly obvious. Yeah. But the vast majority, the herd, didn't see it. Yeah. Watching that film, 
understood it because you know industry that I'm in but I watched it with friends that were not at all investment experts and actually pausing it every few minutes and just sort of recapping on, on what you've seen I think really brings it to life mm. properly because you then sort of really realise how blindingly obvious it is yeah. and th- it's then really shocking that people yeah. the herd did well, Although the point I always like to take away from that is how early some of them were and that was almost some I was at Michael Burry almost went out of business because he was too early betting yes. against the property yeah. market in the US and almost went bust before he had a chance to make any money back. Yeah, we've and gone so back to the, the quote about the market can stay rational for yeah. longer than you can stay yeah. solvent. Yeah, there's not yeah. much difference between yeah. being wrong and being early yeah. yes. on something. There was, yeah. there was a really well-known fund manager whose name escapes me at the moment, who was, when I first started, the investment funds for pension schemes were called balance funds or mixed funds. Mm-hmm. It was mainly equities, property, some oh, gilts and fixed interest, and maybe one or two other things, but nothing really. But they were all run most of them were run in a very competitive environment they just needed to beat the other people in the marketplace right so where I was at when I first started at Eagle Star Investment Managers we had some balance funds and quite rightly we were deemed successful if we outperformed other fund managers yeah. so we would look to see how they were positioned mm. and quite again perfectly rationally and the right thing to do because that's what the objective we said we would go over and underweight markets based upon where other people were positioned yeah, so right. every quarter, point. there was a survey which was filled in, give your numbers, and because you subscribed to the survey, you got the answer yeah. back as to where the average fund was. And you said, okay, I'm going to go underweight equities, underweight equities yeah. relative so, to the average. So that the cap's median? The cap's median. Because I remember that even yeah. when I, I started work quite a long Absolutely. time after that, but the that was still, was that cam- was still the, camera, the camera survey was, yeah. was another one. Yeah. That's all about agency issues, really. It's about when you set a manager or someone a benchmark, the way that influences how they behave mm. is, it's, is important. It's all about how a person's going to get measured because we all want to succeed. Mm. Yeah. And we all might be under just competitive pressures, commercial pressures, or we all like to be liked. We all like to win more clients. We all like to feel mm. as if we're helping people, whatever, whatever presses your buttons. And in that world, it was beating that peer group. And this really well from the manager, he stayed underweight equities for years and years and years and he was losing clients losing clients losing clients and I think he was no longer working by the time he was proved right when there was an equity market crash right and he wasn't around anymore Mm. and it's just be careful be careful as trustees or as investors as what do you set as objectives yeah yeah Yeah, that's a really good point but then don't get obsessed by short term benchmarks what do you really Mm. want to achieve do you really want to return cash plus five every quarter or do you want to do it (laughs) over five years or ten years yeah yeah, so don't lose sight of that. And Why did you invest in the first place? If yeah. that's for a 10-year reason, yeah. look at it over that time sort of yeah. time period. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, assess it, but don't necessarily mm. respond and react mm. materially until you've really reviewed something in the proper context. Yeah. Right. It's interesting the point you make about the balance funds, because that world of equities, maybe a little bit of overseas equities, yeah. property guilt. I mean, that seems a world away from the asset classes we look at today, sort of multi-asset credit, infrastructure, yeah. private debt, and all those sorts of things. Mm, yeah. Yet you started by saying there's nothing new under the sun, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you square that? Well, because those things were owning stuff and they were lending, right. <laughs> really. And that's what was available to those fund managers based in London. Yeah. You couldn't do infrastructure in those funds, yeah. either from a regulatory point of view or just a practical point of view. Private equity was a new world that was just building. There was a team sitting in the corner doing it. Venture capital, it was called at, at the time. Yeah, there was overseas equities in, in there, but there's no, no private stuff you could put in there because these things were priced every week. Mm-hmm. So those things were still there. They just weren't available in that world. So part of it's a sort of an access thing, but also yeah. the way we describe investments these days, we've got much more colourful, I guess, language that we, we use. Just in terms of kind of the way we describe and we talk about markets, investments, 
our investment language, I guess. How have you seen that change over the last 30 years? Yeah, it's again something I've reflected before writing the piece that you referred to earlier on is the, is the rise of jargon or the rise of the three-letter acronym. I mean, there's, there's none of that in our business, right? I mean, it's pretty... Yeah, we've sort, never sort had to jargon bust in this, in this no. before, have we, Dan? It's, I mean, I've literally just written a paper for a client to talk about buying really straightforward, simple credit investments for them. And the first page I've written is a jargon buster. Not to explain my jargon later on, but for when they come to look at managers, is a mm. reference sheet for the sort of stuff you're going to hear. So I've put a piece about three-letter acronyms or TLAs in the piece, and I listed... I could have listed... 20, 30 of the things that you see just floating mm. around and, and some of us use probably too much or managers certainly use too much. And, and why do you think managers is, is use it? That. Why do you think managers use it too much, as you say? There's a certain level of assumed knowledge, I right. think, and a lot of careers, a lot of professions have shorthand, medical profession, legal profession, you can mm-hmm. think of, refer to some things. I think generally fund managers use it because it is the world they live in. It's, right. it's what they do every day. Mm-hmm. So it's quite hard to change your language. And that's our job yeah. is to change the language for our clients, to filter, mm-hmm. to filter that. But the reason why the three-letter acronyms are there is because things have been packaged, things have been combined into legal structures or into pretty relevant in the credit world, into securitized vehicles, a little bit of jargon. Yeah. And as soon as you've got something which has got more than got three, three words in its title... Just takes too long to say it. It takes too long to say it. Twenty mm. times in a presentation. So you talk about CLOs, CDOs, SMEs, DGFs, mm. RMBS, ABS, all stuff which I can sit and give you a ten minute explanation on each one. Yeah. But if the manager's got twenty minutes in a trustee meeting to explain what they've been doing, mm. they will come in and naturally assume that there's some knowledge in there. Yeah. Um, I think that's good. I think there's a potentially a slightly more negative angle to it as well. And you know, I have my suspicions that inherently sometimes it seems to create a mystique around someone if they know something you don't. Mm. Yes. And so that's one reason we all have a bias to using jargon because it increases the mystique around us and it also quite negatively creates a sort of out-group and an in-group. It sort of signals yeah. that I'm in the know because I'm throwing around ABS, SME, DGF, BDC, mm. SMA kind of knowledge and I'm signaling unconsciously, I know stuff, yeah. other people don't know this stuff. I'm clever, so I'm right and you're wrong almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm sure there's a danger that, and that comes down to the human nature, yeah. Yeah. what we do. Yeah. I wonder, thinking back, because you mentioned, as you said in your article, in the 90s you don't feel that there was quite as much jargon and, and certainly not as many sort of three-letter acronyms. And I thought back to the 90s and I thought, I'm sure there were some acronyms. And actually it seems that there were a lot in the sort of IT space. I guess the 90s was a period where... Computers, as you said earlier, were increasingly being used. There was increasing development in that sort of area. Text language came out probably very late 90s. Yes. That's when everyone started having a personal mobile phone. And I wondered whether that sort of spilled over a bit into the investment industry as well. So people that are sort of growing up and they're getting used to abbreviating everything because they're using all this sort of IT equipment. So perhaps it's also to do with, A, the way that we absorb information in our day-to-day lives, but also the progress in IT, which makes lots of investments more easy, more accessible, and perhaps because that's part of the reason why these investments are more accessible and we can talk about them more easily. It's come from the sort of IT industry and maybe that sort of... That's a really interesting point, actually, and I I think it's true that we tend to be more playful with language these days for some reason, or more, Mm. it's become more plastic, certainly the English language, in that words like Brexit, for example, Brangelina, all these kind of amalgams of different words, it just feels like there's more of a predisposition recently I think maybe yeah. it is driven because of the use of tech yeah. you were saying you reckon there was less of this in the 90s right is that, I, is that I think so I've gone back and I thought 
there were some legal phrases that you saw when you were analysing the covenants on the bond. You've actually read them through the legal documents, which, which I did, which was great fun. But I struggled to get around, get further than saying BBC and ITV as being the three letter acronyms that I knew back then. There must have been some asset backed securities and ABS did exist. So it Mm. was there. It just wasn't in the world of the mainstream institutional investor. Anywhere near like it is now. Yeah. The other thing I thought when thinking about acronyms, and actually this is a a four letter acronym, not three. The acronyms you've described are generally where there's a, a lengthy word for something and you then abbreviate it. But yeah. what about things like the FANGs? So FANGs, yeah. that's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, kind of probably should be FANA now, given yeah. Google's now Alphabet. But yeah. that I found quite helpful, and that's just a group of companies to explain a phenomenon that's occurred. So I think there can be sort of times where using acronyms can be helpful. Do you think that? Oh, absolutely. And many of the acronyms, I think, which are referred to as, as earlier, were, are helpful in terms of brevity. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's what you're describing there as a collection of something which is a, something which I think clients find investors find really interesting. The fangs were bigger than Australia in terms of market capitalization at one point. Yeah, I can't remember when that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. in representation in global markets, mm-hmm. and people can latch onto that. And I think that's an acronym and those sort of things which are used to explain something and open up some knowledge. And it tells the story, I suppose. It's, it's catchy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Whereas sometimes the other ones, they just they hide. They give the impression of maybe of something being simple when it's actually quite complicated. Yeah. Until you lift the lid and go look behind it. Yeah. And it's the layers can peel away, but they don't always help. For the investors listening to this podcast, what's the defence against the dangers of acronyms? Oh, just I think it's education in one form or another, either self-education or chatting to people like us Mm -hmm. or lots of people out there. There's lots of information around Wikipedia is fantastic. You can't rely on always being right because someone might have just edited it yesterday and put something in, but which, which isn't. But just the wealth of knowledge that's out there that you can get around these things. You just mm-hmm. have to put the time in to then realise what's really under the bonnet of each one. I say people like us can help with that, certainly. I suppose you've got to pick people up as well, haven't you? You've, not, you've got to be not afraid in meetings to say, look, hold on a minute. Yeah. Let, mm. Can we just have an explainer on that and just try and... Because if it's just coming from a good place, as in people are just saying it because it's just a natural part mm. of where they talk, there's no harm at all, I would have thought, in just no, stopping them and saying, look... I've had a technique in client meetings where we had a manager come in who I thought was going to be a little bit dangerous in this area in terms of their language, of telling them at the start of the meeting that I or the chairman have an invisible jargon button on the table. <laughs> yeah. And I literally bang my fist on the table and says, stop it. Well, why make it invisible? I, I, why don't yeah. we have an actual buzz? Have a button. Yeah. Do that. great big red plastic button. Because that, that would actually make it slightly lighthearted as well, which would yes. yeah. make it slightly less aggressive. I tried to make it lighthearted. Cause, cause, but banging your fist yeah. on the table does sound a little <laughs> yeah. bit aggressive. Yeah. But, did that work yeah. anyway? It did work. It has worked quite a few times. And I normally get good feedback afterwards about yeah. it. And I've heard it being adopted by the chairman when he goes to other meetings. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should thing. get an LCP branded jargon buzzer. I like I it. Like, I like that, that idea. That could be a really, really big seller, I think. Yeah. I think we'll do that. So, Stuart, you started work at a time when you didn't have a computer on the desk. People were still smoking in meetings. Yeah. What sort of advice would you have for today's people beginning a career in finance who are showing up you know, with their iPhone 10, they're listening to podcasts on the way to work, putting out a few tweets, which I presume is something you weren't doing in the late 80s. What advice would you have for new generations in, in the investment markets? I would say use your iPhone 10 <laughs> to read some history. Get on okay. to... Get is, there, on, is there an app for that? There will be now. I will find one or even start one. But just reading some, picking up those little nuggets that you get when managers present and using them to frame other things because there's a lot of transferable experience in here and it's picking it up from people. It's not, as I said earlier, about sitting at the knee of someone metaphorically and just learning and learning and learning. 
it's being on the journey and accepting that it is a journey and that you will pick things up along the way and it's read things along the way. Think about what's happened in the markets in the last month, in the last year. Is there anything in there that you can reference in the future? You won't know it now, but there'll be things there you can reference in the future to contextualise future events. So keep but a diary. Keep a diary. One, actually, that's one of my old bosses kept a diary. Right. And he kept and he had piles and piles of notebooks in his desk going back and he would write a little thing every week right. about what happened. And he had piles and piles of these notebooks. He never referred to them, but the fact he'd written them was his was his library. Yeah. And seriously, did that, I hadn't remembered this, but yes, that's prompted that thought. He just wrote stuff down and that was his way of doing it. So use your iPhone 10, yeah. use the notes <laughs> thing, save it to the cloud, make sure you pay your cloud storage bill every month and that becomes your diary and just writing it down will help build a, a bank of knowledge. But read about economic market history. Read about books written by the the heads of JP Morgan in the 1970s, mm-hmm. the Lee Iacocas of running car companies in the 1970s and 80s. Pick up those sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, okay, Great. Yeah, we do make some of the same mistakes again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great advice. So as we're winding up now, how can listeners contact you or read your stuff and find your thoughts? The LCP website will be a source of much information, not just not just the little things that I sometimes write. Uh, LinkedIn as well, I think, tends to be a great, a great source of things. And I certainly read that a lot and learn a lot and sometimes comment on, on some things on there. Great. And I guess on that note, Stuart, any recommendations for listeners in terms of books, articles, podcasts? Yeah, I think yeah. The Big Short is the most... Still the most current piece of entertainment relating to recent events. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's Ryan Gosling, isn't it, who plays the Deutsche Bank salesman. I love love that character. He's pretty convincing. And it's Michael Scott is the fund manager of Hedge Fund, isn't it, I think, the guy who played in the US office. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really bad at the actors' names, but I think think you're right. Yeah, Yeah. some great actors. Right then. So, Stuart, normally we do a quick fire round where we're asking okay. people for the next decade, which of the following two things do you back? But given we're talking about the last 30 years, okay. then I guess we should be talking about for the next 30 years, mm. which of the following two things do you back? And, and we might of course, hold you we'll to hold it. you to it. We'll be back here in 30 years with another podcast and we'll see <laughs> how it works out. Okay, so I'll be ready. Right. So, for the next 30 okay. years, equity or debt? Equity. Emerging markets or developed markets? The US market. Okay. Economics versus computer science as a degree. Computer science. 80s fashion versus 90s fashion. (laughs) My wardrobe is full of each. (laughs) It doesn't come out much anymore. I would say, I'd say 80s fashion. 90s got a bit boring. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. CDOs versus CLOs. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, it's not much real difference. CLOs, go on. You're good at getting off the fence here. Simple yeah. loans, simple loans. Just let, just lend. Just there, yeah, yeah. Simple lending, packaged up, CLOs. Justin Bieber versus Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Timberlake. Yes. Great. Timberlake every time. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely had you down on Timberlake fan. Yeah. yeah. And finally, AI threat or opportunity? Threat. Well, that was the quickest answer we've had, mm. I think, on that one. Yeah. Threat. I've watched Terminator too many times. You're a credit guy. You're a risk guy. You focus yeah. on the yeah. downside. I always, always focus on what could go wrong. Yeah. Okay. I always do that. And Stuart, finally from me, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? I think we referred to it earlier on that the market is just a collection of people mm-hmm. and therefore it's a collection of emotions. Yeah. And that's what makes it really hard. But you can then understand why things go wrong if you understand it's just a collection of emotions. Mm-hmm. That's a bit philosophical. Nice answer. That. I like it. It's a bit philosophical, yeah. but I think I've earned that. 
No, it's great. That's yeah, a, great, it's a, it's a, great, it's a yeah. great one to finish on. So, Stuart, thank you so much for Pleasure. taking the time thank today. You. Really enjoyed that discussion. Thank mm. you so much for your time. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, do please leave us a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference and we do appreciate it. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.